Well, thank you, gentlemen. I want to echo what Jeremy said, just to give you context, by the way, to what he was talking about. As, as you know, some of us up here were away last week, and some of us for illness, like Carrie and I, and then some for travel, like Jeremy. So he was in a different church. But a reminder for both of us, whether we were in a so-called church or we were just away from the assembly, one thing we shared already this week, Jeremy and I did, our hearts ache to be here. And, and I pray, Westmount, you feel the same. Just one Sunday away is way too long to be away from here. And the peace and the joy, and as we said yesterday, men, the sanity of being here. So I pray you feel that this morning. It is good. I speak for Jeremy and my wife. It is good to be here. Good to be back. Good to start this new year together. So as we continue in worship, why don't you take your Bible, your copy of God's Word, and turn with me to the book of Romans. If you're visiting with us, another warm welcome and an invitation to the Bible that's in front of you. Take a look at the rack in front of you. You will see that. You can follow along there. Turn to the book of Romans in there. We invite you to do that. And we will begin in chapter 4. And we return, of course, Westmount, this Lord's Day morning to this letter. We return to Romans. This letter that presents to us the gospel of God. Remember, last year, beginning of the fall term, we were in chapter 1, verse 1. The gospel of God. That's how this letter is introduced. The gospel of God. Specifically, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of God. That's what we're saying. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of God, which is, and Paul continues to narrow in this letter, which is this, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That's what this letter is about. This letter is covered first, as Paul unveils it divinely here, these inspired words, this letter is covered first mankind's need for the power of God, mankind's need for salvation, chapter 1. Do you remember? Because by nature, our default is that we are truth suppressors. Thus, we're given over. By nature, I need no programming or rearing here for this. By nature, we are against God. Chapter 1 outlined that. And so, with the wrath of God revealed from heaven against such unrighteousness, remember, we are under a holy God. That penalty faces all humanity. No one is excluded from that penalty. As such, human beings, fellow human beings, we need salvation. Paul in this letter reminds us that this salvation is not just for the flagrant evildoers. Remember, we could get to a point to say, well, that's not me, right? I'm moral. I do good. In chapter 2, he turns to such moralists. Those acting decent, yet still perishing. And then on the heels of the moralist, he turns to the legalist. Remember, specifically with the Jews in view, feeling very secure with their law works. And Paul, as he does in chapter 1 and 2 then, would say this, None, the flagrant or the self-deceived, are right in God's sight. That's the purpose of the opening of this letter. 
That's what it reveals. Hence then, in chapter 3, the capstone, anthropological, by way of that we'd say human, the humanity truth, the human revelation, the capstone revelation of humanity in this letter is this. Remember chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And by the way, West Mound, in case we haven't got this to open Romans, none means none. None. None at all are righteous. All humanity falls short, is totally depraved, and thus in need of salvation. That is crystal clear. Anyone responsibly, thoroughly, rightfully reading Romans in the first three chapters can come to no other conclusion. Thus, at the end of chapter 3, Paul introduced the only means of being right with God, the only means of salvation. Chapter 3, verse 21, you remember this, but now, there's the contrast, humanity falls, humanity sins, humanity is depraved, but now, great contrast in the word of God, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets. Remember those law and prophets who bore witness and pointed to the righteousness of God, the good news coming. Now, and this is where we left off before Christmas, now, chapter 322, the righteousness of God has been manifested, and note this, here we get the instrument of it, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the manifestation, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's it. That is what mankind needs to hear. That's what every human being needs to reckon with. You've heard it said, at the end of the day, what do you do about Jesus? What do you do about him? There's no fence sitting with Jesus. Faith in Christ. Not just nodding your head to Christ. Faith in Christ. Faith in Messiah. Faith in the promised one. That is it. Active. Not our reasoning, our morals, our law-keeping as a heavenly security blanket. And certainly not our works. None of that, as we've learned, can save. Only faith in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, a wrath appeasement by God's Christ's blood. His atoning sacrifice, and listen, only that atoning sacrifice as 325 in this letter tells us, is to be received by faith, beloved. There's no other way. There is no other way to be made right with God. Faith in the offered Son and faith in the Son alone. That is what this letter has taught us thus far. And today we turn to chapter 4 and we have Paul present illustrations of such faith. In fact, we're going to look at fathers of the faith. Fathers of the faith demonstrating what true faith is, a faith without works. Fathers of the faith, if you will. They're familiar examples. You know them both. You know their life's work. And especially to the Jew. Now, by the way, when you think about this letter written to the Roman church, remember in the first century their Bible was what? The Old Testament. The Gentile converts knew about Abraham and David, who we're going to see today as well. Not just the Jew. These would have been to the faith, to the Christian faith, to the newly birthed church, well-known illustrations. These fathers of the faith. 
In fact, it was the work of these fathers, their righteous deeds, that's most well known. That's the thing. When you think of these two that we're going to look at today, you think of their deeds. So it's most well known. There was Abraham's efforts to leave Ur, do you remember? To follow God and to head to the promised land. We know that. Genesis 12. Well known was Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son. You know Genesis 22. That effort, that work, it would seem, to willingly sacrifice his son, his son Isaac. Renowned was David's bold slaying of Goliath. We all know that. In fact, you even hear of those illustrations outside of these walls, a David and Goliath story. And we also know Christian of his famous sparing of King Saul twice. Who am I to touch the Lord's anointed? So we know of these holy deeds. All these righteous deeds were indeed well known, but the question with them, and this is presented not just in the first century, but to us today as we learn our Bible and learn of the faith of these fathers. Did those deeds, when we think about how well-known these men were, did those deeds, because they're exemplary and famous, did they save? Is this what made them right before God? That's the question, right? And I would submit to you, even if our mind and theology is right, there's still a sense But we need to continually remind ourselves of the answer to that question. Did those deeds, in fact, make Abraham and David right before God? There's a a very human economy that would say, of course they did. Of course. You do right in the name of Almighty, and of course you're going to be made right before God. And this is an important question, because if that is true, then... Westman, we'd say, what about the rest of us then? If that's true of Abraham and David. If they do, Westmount, the message and example for you, and especially if you're here today seeking the Lord, and the message to any who is seeking God today, if this is true, and you're seeking to be made right with him, if that is true, then you need to get busy working. Right? Get busy Get doing things for the Lord. That's the message. Be like Abraham. Put it on a poster. Be like David. Tie it to your finger. Go get him. Get yourself right. Take those bootstraps and pull them up. Mercifully, by the grace of God, that is not how one is made right before God. Praise the Lord for that. This message is not Father's of works. It's not an exposition of the work of the fathers. We're going to look at faith without works. In fact, we could call it the fathers of the faith. And this passage will show us why. Let us then consider it as a whole first. Start with me, chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Father, may you take those words inspired from you and give us eyes to see, ears to be opened. Let our minds see them, hearts receive them, Lord, and as we pray each week, give us will, volition, and ability, Lord, to live in light of those truths, to give you glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Abraham and David are the two in view in this passage. And for the Jew, and we would say for all of us, Abraham and David represent fathers of the faith. That's what's presented here. So let's dig into this. First, we're going to look at Abraham. Look at Abraham. Look at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? The first thing we want to recognize with that statement, it's not a benign, separate, a brand new thing that Paul is doing as we come back to this study in Romans. Paul is simply continuing the argument. He's simply picking up the threads that he has laid in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Hence, you see the what then And again, all of these great words that show us a flow of an argument. Paul says, what then shall we? Do you see the we there? Paul here including himself with the Jew, presumably, that's in view. Again, the Jew most famously for knowing Abraham, revering him. He says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham? And here we see similar pronoun, our forefather according to the flesh. Paul, of course, would be one of these. He was a Jew, famously, and Abraham, indeed, according to the flesh, was his forefather. Well, here, what Paul is doing, and this we need to really zone in as we gain the framework of Paul's argument. He's going to introduce one side of a table here, and it's this, according to the flesh, ethnicity, Paul is laying the groundwork for a patronage that's coming. So on one side, we would say this, it's by flesh, it's according to flesh. And the Jew would say, we know all about that. We know Abraham. However, what Paul is presenting, and maybe already you've seen it in this text, he's presenting a patronage that's not according to flesh. If you've read through in Romans, you see where he's going with this. But he needs to introduce this common thought of, well, yes, I have the bloodline of Abraham. I know that patronage. So this is what Paul is doing as he introduces with this expression, our forefather according to the flesh. The Jew sits up. Because by the flesh, the Jew would answer, verse 1, their answer would be a lot. A lot was gained according to the flesh. I know Abraham and he gained a lot for us. Our great patriarch, our great example, yes, Paul, Abraham gained much according to the flesh. As mentioned already, Abraham was one of the exemplary ancestors for the Jew. In fact, it is not inaccurate to say that Abraham was the prime example, the foremost. It's not inaccurate to say that. To the Jew with righteous works, none was revered more than Abraham. Abraham was it. In fact, so revered and beloved and esteemed was Abraham that quite a number of ancient Jewish writings taught that Abraham was indeed made right, justified by his works. And here we take a moment and dip into some of those just so you get a sense. These would be what we would call apocryphal works, extra-biblical writings, contemporary of the time. Some came later, which is very telling. Some of these even 
flow hundreds of years later, but are looking back, and what they're revealing is this oral tradition about Abraham. For example, the Wisdom of Sirach, one of these extra-biblical books, says, Abraham, listen to this, and quote directly, became right with God because of his obedience. That's what they would believe, right? These are in their extra writing. Another one, the Book of Jubilee, says this, I quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Listen to the language there. Abraham was perfect. Prayer of Manasseh, another one, actually goes on to say that Abraham, along with some other patriarchs, didn't even need to repent. Imagine that. Abraham didn't need to repent. In fact, I read one this week that said, Abraham, and you have to deal, we're going to deal with chronology next week, but dealing with the chronology of Abraham with respect to the Mosaic law, of course, the Jew would have known this, Abraham coming well before it, said Abraham anticipated the law of Moses, By the way, that's a 400-year gap. And in preview, he acted out all the precepts of the law. That's how revered Abraham was. Yes, in Jewish lore, Abraham could do no wrong. His conduct, his work, made him right. This comes through over and over again in the ancient extra-biblical writings. Now, before we consider Abraham further, Paul takes us immediately to the implications of that. This is very good to consider if that is true, right? If that is true, then this, look at verse 2. Let's just follow Paul here. For if, Paul says, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, this makes sense. If it's true that he was made right with God and his right standing with God is based on what he did, we know this, he can boast, right? He can boast. Athletes do this all the time, don't they? Like, did you see what I just did out there? You know what I'm doing? right? And they can boast on that. Whether or not they should or shouldn't is a different matter. But we understand this economy. If they did it, in one sense, they have a right to boast. And that's the question of Abraham. And I want us to think now, as we slow it down, getting back into Romans. Think here. If Abraham was made right in God's sight by works... If that was indeed true, then he can boast. He can boast about it. And why not? Abraham could say, I did it. I did it. Think about on Mount Moriah, where he did willingly lay Isaac on the altar to sacrifice him. Got the bundles ready, had the knife in the air. He could walk down off Mount Moriah in that obedience And basically say, did you see that? Was anyone watching what happened up there? Of course, Abraham didn't say that. In fact, long before that mountain, he knew who made him right. This comes through in that text. He understands his posture before God. But that begs us to stop for a moment in light of what Abraham has done and what the text is doing. We pause here to consider if we know that. If We claim God, and we know that. What of our boasts, beloved? What of our boasts? Often very, very subtle. And let's be clear here this morning. We don't dare boast overtly, right? Our boasts need to be well-calculated and very subtle. So one domain they pop up in is our prayers. God, did you see that? God, did you see that? Did you see me at church today, God? 
Did you see that deed I did today, God? And it wasn't even Sunday. Did you see me doing, God? God, God, did did you see me working? Prayer boasts, we know them. Sometimes our prayers can't contain our boasts. And we must make sure that others know. In fact, we can't help ourselves. Someone needs to know what I've done for the Lord today. We get very coy, and we get very coy and sly versions of this. Did you see that? Making sure someone hears and sees what you've done. Make sure, just make sure in our boast someone knows what we've done. I'm sure our boasts can indeed turn some eyes. And you know, that's the tricky thing. Boasts do. Boasts turn human eyes, don't they? They cause other people to say, wow, look at them. But that's it. That's as far as our boasts go. And they certainly have no effect. No effect where it matters most. No effect, beloved, where work matters most. And where is it? Verse 2, before God. Look at the end of the verse. For Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, and he may, but listen, but not before God. Do you see that? Paul blows it up. Nothing before God to boast on. Before God, men and women have no boast, no matter what their flesh has gained. There is no boast before God. Paul uses that word, look at it, boast, because he's used it already. Look at chapter 3, verse 27. He's already laid the table for where boasting is included in the gospel. Paul has already shown, in fact, thinking of chapter 3, that boasting in Jewishness or lawlessness or lawfulness or works is excluded. God is the one, remember, verse 26 of that third chapter, that is both what? The just and the justifier. Justification, then, is all God. Not the Jew, not man, not anyone, only God, we have learned, can justify. This is the point. Now, this letter continues to remind us of this truth over and over again. It feels like waves as we study Romans, right? Over and over again, we're getting this truth. That only God himself can make us right and justify in his sight. And as such, we need to be reminded over and over again. And you would say, why? But I think we know why. Because as human beings, whether we're honest about this or not, self-righteousness and a works righteousness where we think we can and are earning something before God, is like a perpetual low-grade fever that can plague us if we're not careful. Self-righteousness in the thinking we're earning something before God, listen, it doesn't just sabotage salvation. It can cripple your sanctification. Yes, I'm saved and it's all God, but look then what I'm doing. If you think this is just something that we're making up this morning or flows out of some inferences in Romans, consider the Galatian church, those new believers. Saved by, remember, no other gospel but the true gospel and then wanting to live in light of some old man economy. And what does Paul say in Galatians 3? Listen to this stinging rebuke because they want to perfect themselves In a sense, they want to be sanctified. They want to carry on now according to the flesh. Yes, thank you for spirit. Thank you, God, for that justification. But all kinds of things we see in the Galatian church now wanting to be perfected by flesh. Listen to what Paul says. Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, only him. 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? One side. Or by hearing with faith? Other side. And then this. Are you so foolish, Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you see that? He's so foolish, Galatians. Why do you think this stops at salvation? It doesn't. This wrong thinking that works can make us right, even post-salvation, is a threat to not just being saved, not just the entry to the Christian life, but it can sabotage so much in the Christian life. So by way of reminder, Westmont, let's be reminded of these clear things. And again, by way of recap and review, some Christianity 101 as we come back to this text this morning. We cannot make ourselves right before God. Let's remind ourselves of a few reasons. Number one, because of our sin, we can't. We are incapable of reaching the divine standard of righteousness, which is what? Better than other people? Is the standard just be better than other people? Just don't do as the bad people? No, 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 no. no. The standard is perfection. None of us can achieve that. So we cannot make ourselves right before God. Secondly, we cannot make ourselves right before God because our works can never atone for our sin. Try and try and try as we might. We're pushing a boulder up a hill that keeps falling back on us. No matter how good or how many our works are, just one bad work, says James, too, warrants death. Just one. That's enough for eternal separation from God. So they can never atone. We cannot make ourselves right before God. Three, why? Because if we could, that would make Christ's atoning death, listen, useless. If we could atone in any way before God, everything you have done this morning, if you've sung and claimed him, listen to me, is useless. It's useless. If we can. And the Bible is clear Let's be clear about that. Christ is the only useful work for the human being. And four, we cannot make ourselves right before God because if man could save himself, God's glory would be outstripped by man. Yet what have we learned in Romans 3? Again, by way of review, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. All sin. So friends, let's again settle this in our minds before we march further through Romans. We cannot make ourselves right before God. We may boast before others, but we have no boast before God. Now, Paul will turn here to remind again on the means of justification. This is where he is headed. Look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul, as he's done so often in this letter, and by the way, as he'll continue to do, especially as we get in toward the end, Romans 9 and 10 and 11, he will continue to turn to the Old Testament. He will continue to turn to the ancient writings. What's interesting to note here is where Paul does not go. Let's not miss this. What we have to note, if you look at that, What does the scripture say? Paul, of course, is referencing something in the Old Testament. But the first thing we have to note is where he doesn't go. Where he could go, but he doesn't go. He doesn't go to Genesis 12. What's in Genesis 12? Remember, we mentioned it already. Abraham's famous departure from Ur. 
I will leave these people and go as promised and follow you, Lord. He doesn't go there. He doesn't go to Genesis 22. He doesn't go to that famous chapter on the sacrifice of Isaac. He doesn't go there. No, he goes here. Turn with me to Genesis 15. That's where Paul takes us, Genesis 15. So we just follow the word here. He turns to Genesis 15. And what's interesting about Genesis 15 even is it's coming off of Genesis 14, which depicts a heroic exploit of Abraham. Grabbing, you remember, 318 men and rescuing Lot, very heroic. Lot, his nephew. And then the blessing by a mighty king, Melchizedek. That's the end of chapter 14. You'd say, aha, well, what comes next? Well, let's read in chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. <clears throat> your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Beloved, look carefully here at this text. Abraham, look at it, the first five verses, recognizes, and I want us to see, he admits his inability. He sees, look at verse 2, he sees the prospect of death. In fact, what does he say? I continue childless. In other words, my impotency and inability to create seed and offspring continues. I can't do this. I can't propagate. I have no future. And with that, there's God's promise to provide Abraham a future and a hope. And to provide it by way of a son. And look at it, in spite of Abraham's age, by the way, which would have been 75. You can imagine just the force of his words here. 75 years. I can't bring about a child. And Sarah's womb in view, the barren womb. Abraham has absolutely nothing to boast about here. There's nothing to boast about for Abraham. That's the context. Abraham's futility and inability, yet the promise of God, said again, said the promise of God for prosperity and salvation, or in provision, I should say. In fact, if we were to pull back and consider the next string of context, we don't need to do this, but this is helpful. If we were to pull back even a gradation or two, we would see further demonstrations of Abraham's incapable work, his falling short. Just consider with me for a moment. In chapter 12, you have him fleeing to Egypt in a famine as opposed to trusting God. He turns to the Egyptians. In Egypt, by the way, he lies to Pharaoh about Sarah being his wife. And by the way, reading that text, you recognize he doesn't just do it once, he does it twice. And actually, you find out this was the pattern he told Sarah. Wherever we go, you're my sister because I don't want trouble. He lied. Over and over again, he lied. That's Abraham. More, in the very next chapter, he's going to listen to the sinful counsel of his wife. Look at chapter 16. You can imagine now, right, as the years are going on, 
She's not pregnant. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, that was her name before, has changed to Sarah, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This is her own eyes and her own reasoning here. So what are you going to do, Hagar or uh, Sarah? You're going to get busy with what? Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Wow. And then this, reminiscent of the garden, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Right? The sinful counsel. So the sin over and over again, the falling short. So not only is Abraham incapable of making himself right before God, but he continues to prove it over and over again. Such is this father of the faith, Abraham. All the while, God demonstrates, and this is under the undercurrent of the text, God is demonstrating that only God has the power to make right and preserve. Think about the promises God is saying through this, through such impotence. He said, I will do it. I will do it. One imagines human reasoning in the light of such a scene to say, do you honestly believe that? Do you really believe that? Abraham, you cannot. You have 75 years of evidence. Abraham, listen, only God can. He does things and he said some things, but it's still a futile scene. But look at the force of verse 5. God says, verse 5, so shall your offspring be. That's what God says. And the question, by the way, beloved, every time God says something, this is not just an Abraham thing, it's a you thing. Every time God says something, here's the question. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Imagine 75 years old, no children, father of many nations we're going to learn next week. Do you believe it? I don't even need to suggest to you all manner of jest and comedy and scoffing and mocking that would go with something like that. Are you kidding me? Says the human being. Abraham, how do you respond? Look at verse 6. And he believed the Lord. That's more powerful than we can even comprehend in this moment. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed, and there's a consequent. He believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. So much we could say here, but we do need to to move along. In this verse, we have the first instance, we would say this, in the Bible of belief. That's one of the first instances you have of this concept of belief. And by the way, to believe here is to have faith. These are synonyms, right? Particularly as we look at Abraham, to believe is to have faith. And for Abraham here, in light of his inability and weakness, he can do nothing. And note this, all that he can do, if we would even say it's a doing at all, like all incapable humanity, this is all you can do. When your impotency and God's potency is revealed before you, all you can do is take God at his word. That's it. Faith is the genuine belief in what you cannot do and what only God can do. Mark it. That's faith. Faith is the recognition put into action. Placing trust somewhere to say, I can't and only he can. That's faith. God has spoken. Friend, do you believe it? That's faith. 
And here, Abraham's belief, his faith in the Lord's work, is how he is made right. It's not even some act, we could say, of Abraham. This is an instrument. This is a bridge that gets him to the only way that's made right. Abraham, how will you carry on after death? Abraham, how will you be justified? Here we see that faith is the only gateway to righteousness. That's it. There's none other. The text says that Abraham's belief was counted to him by God as righteousness. You see that? What the text doesn't say, and we do need to do this, that God looked at all Abraham did and or would do in the chapters following and called him righteous. That's not what the text says, does it? It doesn't look at all at what he's done. It communicates clearly, look at verse 6, that righteousness before God comes by way of faith. That's it. The word counted there, now we're seeing it here behind that would be a Hebrew word, there in the original means to reckon or consider as such. That would be the Old Testament, the Hebrew original. That's what it means, to reckon or consider. The idea lying there, and it's a broader sense in the Hebrew for sure, and we're going to come to the Greek in a moment. The idea there is to have something credited, something reckoned, something credited. I want you to think accounting here. That's what this is. This is something counted and credited. Even more specific, let's turn now to the New Testament and look at the word in the Greek. Turn back to the New Testament, Romans. You see the same word there, now given, right, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, but of course he writes the New Testament in Greek. Look at what he says. Verse 3, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now there's no things missed in translation here. He uses, in that sense, the same idea. And that word there is an economic and very specifically in this language here in the New Testament, an accounting term. Even more, we could say this is a legal term. And after Paul references this counting by God to Abraham by way of faith, the word goes on to say this. Now, let's continue. He lays it down, but now look what Paul does. He gives us more. Think of what Abraham's done and Paul's argument here. Let's put them together. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Those are the two things set against each other. Wages that are due and then a gift. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let's keep this simple. Well, because there's lots here, not only in this text, but we're going to get to in Romans. So we want to keep things very simple. In these verses, and on the reality of crediting accounts, we see only two ways. Accountants here are loving this because they get this. There's really two ways, right? In verse 4, look at it, an account is credited by way of work. Right? By way of work. We know this way. We have worked. We have earned a wage and our account has been filled. We know this way, don't we? It's very natural to us. We look at our bank account and we see a regular credit and why we see it there and we say, yes, that should be because we worked for it. Right? We know that way. That's number one. It's one way. The other way, an account is credited. It's also credited But the source and the origin is not work. Look, he uses this word in verse 4. It's credited by way of gift. And then he expands it on verse 5. By way of gift. We know this way too. We have not worked at times. We have not earned, but what? You look in your account and you say, wow, where did that come from? Your relative says, "I, I put something in there for you, or you recognize you got a gift. We know that way. 
Somehow an amount was credited to our account. We didn't work for it. It's not our wage, but it's a gift. This is the account credit that has nothing to do with our work. Now, this is very important. I can't say it more simply. This is the basis of our justification. Account crediting by way of gift, not earning. We know that. So what Paul is doing here is he's clearly presenting and contrasting the two ways in which we receive divine account credit. He uses an economy horizontally to say, well, this is the way that it works divinely. And by presenting the two, he's teaching two things. Let's track with him. One, that if we could work and earn a wage in God's sight, it would be our due. And we've talked about this already. If we could earn something with God, we would boast and it'd be our due, right? If we could. The problem, though, with that is that Paul has shown that such work and earning is impossible, As such, not only are we unrighteous, chapter 3, verse 10, not only do we fall short, chapter 3, verse 23, but any such boasting we think we can do, chapter 3, verse 27, is excluded. So we can't, whether we think we're doing it or not. So we can't earn this. Friends, this economy is so familiar to us, we just want to apply it to God. We know this, work, earn, work, earn, right? Top up credit. We we just want to apply it to God because it's easy, isn't it? Is that all I have to do? So we perform good works and think we're topping up our divine account. However, as we've seen repeatedly, it doesn't work that way. And this, by the way, this is part of the bad news. This is the bad news. You can't work and you can't earn anything with God. Our works are illegal, counterfeit, void. Not just Romans 3, Isaiah 59. The more we work, the more bankrupt we are. Which brings us to the second, second presentation here by Paul. Secondly, the only way the ungodly are justified or made right or counted righteous, which by the way, did you catch this in the verse? He says the ungodly, which in context would include Abraham, perish the thought for the Jew, the ungodly. The only way such a one, ungodly, right, which is all humanity, is made right with God is through belief in him. Now, Notice there, that is a very important thing that we can't scan over. Look at it, but believes in him. Do you see that? Believes in him. Let's not miss that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But it's a belief in him. Who is this him that justifies the ungodly? Again, hold it. Before we move on, though, we want to make sure we're clear. Again, we're moving slowly and simply. God says, and has made this clear in these passages, mankind is not made right in God's sight. Not made right in God's sight because mankind cannot make himself right in his sight. So man cannot do this. He's not made right through man or any of his efforts. However, there is a way to be made right with God. There is a way of righteousness before God. And here we see Paul teaching us, if one believes. Like Abraham, with the faith of that father, that is how one is made right. Okay, now let's address the unfinished business in these verses with regard to faith. We need to consider a couple remaining realities that this leaves us with before we move on to David. And we need to do this. Number one. Beloved, I cannot say this enough because the text has it, and not just here, but over and over and over again in the New Testament. Belief is not ambiguous. 
Belief is not abstract. Belief is not so abstract that it lacks an object. Look at verse 5. It does not say, but believes, and then you have a period there. What does it say? It says, but believes what? In him. This is real belief. This is belief with an object, belief with a center, belief with a foundation, and this is crucial. Why? Because this is not the amorphous belief of modernity. This is not the squishy jello belief that's all around you, not the least of which at Christmas time in the marketplace. Just believe in belief. Have you heard that? Just believe in belief and believe in that and do that and so on. Sure, there's some attempt at an object, but you know when we realize, wow, we need to believe in something, do you know what we insert as the object? Ourselves. And what do you hear? Pumped out of movie screens. Believe in yourself. That's the ticket. Believe in yourself. We're drawn to such wrong belief. And let me give you a reason why. This is what I want to propose to you today. Because it serves us well. Not only does it sound really good. Lifts people off their movie chairs for a moment. It sounds really good. But here's the other thing. Not only does it lift us up. It doesn't tie us down. That's great. When belief is ambiguous. It has no demands on us. I can define belief however I want. This is great. Just believe and live as I like. Sign me up. Or better yet, we get to define completely belief's terms, belief's arms and legs and what it looks like. We define it. We're the authors of it. And it's very convenient. And we may like that belief, but listen, it's a belief that leads to, says the Bible, destruction. Because it's right in our own eyes, but it's not right. And more, the belief the Bible points to, verse 5, listen, it's not an amorphous belief. Look at it. It's a belief in him. And you say, well, who is that? Maybe you're here today and say, well, who is this? It's Christ Jesus. It's faith in Christ. We've seen this already. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Let's be reminded. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Look at this. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in who? Jesus Christ for all who what? Believe. Believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And how are they to be made right if they are to? Are justified by his grace as a gift through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, so clear. And speaking of Christ, by the way, what is it about Christ or with Christ that belief gives access to? This is also important. Talked about amorphous belief in belief or self. Let's dig deeper, friends. Let's do this. Let's dig deeper. What of Christ? Is it just Christ? The concept of Christ? Said another way, is this belief just simply that Christ lived and did things? You know how many people believe that? Many people believe. Yes. Yes, I believe you, Jason. Yeah, Christ lived. Yes, yes, yes. Is it just believing in a historical Jesus, an exemplary Jesus, or an inspiring Jesus? I mean, is that the gospel, really? Just believe in that guy, Jesus? Just that the believers in the room here today, all of us that came today, believe that Jesus existed. That's our common bond. He lived a good life and died, and you know what? We're here today because we're trying to as well. That certainly, listen to me, that certainly is the gospel for many people. Lots of professing Christians today are really have the gospel of trying to be made right with God. 
and adjusting their schedule to see if God can fit in there. They profess a confession, or so they claim, an identity of Jesus that's so shallow it's imperceptible. And sadly, I have to to tell you, in some circles, the gospel's brought down even lower than that, if we even dare call it a gospel at all. It's the old man in the sky. He'll let you in, you know, if you just believe he exists. Just believe he's there and you're going to be okay. Yes, a ticket to heaven because you know at the very least you're just not an atheist. And that's nice. You're not an unbelieving atheist. That's really nice. But is that faith? No, it is not. It's spiritual mumbo-jumbo is what that is. It knows nothing of New Testament doctrine. And listen, beloved, we press the point here at Westmount because you're swimming in it. Again, Jeremy shared with you his heart and what he saw last week. A lot of us have been there. It's nonsense that leads to destruction. So what if faith like Abraham, that truly saved, that is truly counted as righteousness? What about Christ? What about Christ? What about him that our faith is hinged on? Not just an abstraction, not just a cardboard cutout, not a bumper sticker, God forbid, not just some pleasantry. What about Christ are we hinging everything on? To that, Paul turns to another faithful believer. And we end with David in the final verses here, six to eight. Look at them. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I want you to see that there in verse 6. Look at it. Just as, just as. English teachers know that's called a simile. That's introducing a parallel. Like this, just like that. There are two things in parallel being compared. And simply what this text is telling us is that faith you're going to see here with David is the same as you first saw with Abraham. There's no difference. No different faith with Abraham. Their faith is the same. And this is important. Another way of application, beloved, because there's no relative faith here. And you know what we mean by that? Relative faith. This is not Abraham's faith, but you know then there's David's faith. And we get the camps going like 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Well, you know, I have faith like Abraham. Oh, but I have faith like David. Or I have my own faith. Here are two more modern heresy. That faith can be different depending on who you know. That's not his kind of religion or her kind of church. She's just not that kind of faithful one. You know that. He'll be all right in the end. He doesn't believe like you do, but she'll be all right. You know that. You hear it all the time. Such wishful thinking is not only unbiblical, but the just as, look at it in verse 6, the just as kills it. This is key because you're going to see two different types of episodes here. For Abraham... It was in light of a promise and a hopeless future, his faith. For David, as we'll see, as we've sung, as has been read, it's in light of his sin and the need for atonement. Different times, different lives, but the exact same faith, exact same faith accounted, as we'll see. Again, here, the context for this, father and the faith, is very different, even Just look at verses 6, 7, and 8. You recognize right away this is very different to what we just read about Abraham. And as it is, turn to Psalm 32 as we close and look at what these verses are taken from. We turn to where Paul did. 
As this portion closes, this portion of the argument closes, he turns to Psalm 32. This is what Luke led us in earlier. And the context here is in the wake of both David's sin. So this, note this, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, uh, give that account with Bathsheba, murdering of Uriah. But not only that, this is in the wake of David's repentance. Psalm 51 gives us this. So this is a bit more downstream. We have David sinning. Right? We have his repentance, but here we have a reflection. This is a penitent, reflective psalm, but very instructive for us. Unlike Abraham, there's no direct discourse with God or promise from him that we saw when Paul referenced Genesis 15. He's going here to Psalm 32. This is very different. This is just David reflecting on his sin. Now look at that psalm. We're not going to go through it all, of course. We read it. But what Paul is doing here is signaling that something in David's reflection in Psalm 32 is identical to what we witnessed with Abraham in Genesis 15. That's what he's doing. So what is that? Well, let's see. This is very simple. We'll read the verses that Paul quotes. Just the part Paul quotes. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's how the psalm begins. And that's what Paul quotes. Three times, look in those two verses, three times David expresses what? That he is blessed, why? Because the Lord has done something with his transgression, with his sin, and verse 2, his iniquity. Three times he says that. He is forgiven, he is covered in this, in verse 2. Against him, against David, the Lord counts no iniquity. And if you say, is that the same word as Genesis 15? Yes, it is. Counts is the same word here. It's the word that connects actually those two passages and connects them to Romans 4. This is what Paul is doing. He's taking us all over scripture to show us one faith. So here for David, sin is not counted to him. But note the context difference. This is not in promise. This is in sin. In his forgiveness, David recognizes that his account has been cleared of sin. Do you see that? His account now, getting back to the accounting, it's been cleared of sin. But also, that in its place, something has been transacted to his account and it's actually blessing. We should be aghast at that. He was with Bathsheba, he murdered Uriah, and that got cleared, and he's imputed blessing. That's exactly what's going on here. In the place of earned sin, David, something foreign, something alien has been credited and counted. Which you'd say imputed as the NASB, or as we love this, the King James says, imputeth, right? Something has been credited to your account. Now remember, whatever this thing is that's been credited, such faith imputes the same just as just as Romans 4, verse 6, just as Abraham, right? It's the same thing is in view. So what is being removed from our account, as we see with David, and what is being credited, imputed, counted, as we see with Abraham, begs a question, what is that? What is that that's removing and adding? Now, Westmount, both the time this morning, although we anticipated this, and the text that is coming in the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5, are going to answer this fully for us. So this morning, again, as we end, we're only going to introduce this concept that we're going to see again and again in Romans, particularly outlined verse by verse in Romans 5. Paul is going to develop this theology fully. So we only need to introduce it here. And it's simply this, that when we believe, 
When we place faith and trust in Christ, we are justified. That's it simply. When we believe, when we place faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are justified and made right in His sight. That simply is it. And to be justified in God's sight means that Christ, and here it is, takes on our sin. Where did it go? Christ takes on our sin, counts it to him, and thereby gives us, in return, credits to our account a righteousness that's his own. It's the great exchange. And I might submit to you, if you're sitting there and and say, yeah, I kind of heard those things. It's just a testimony how we need to hear these things again and again. Your sin... For his righteousness. You do nothing. He does everything. The great exchange, it's so much more. It is a blessed, blessed thought. In Christ, your account is complete. In Christ, and only in Christ, you're made right. Do you believe that? Have you received that? And can we sing that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, how are we complete in your son? Our minds can't comprehend this blessed thought. God, please help us today. Because the more that we do understand and comprehend, the more we live this truth. Oh God, help us, we pray. Amen.